0: So after saying Bismillah walhamdulillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man So inshaAllah ta'ala we have a new topic to start today um, It's a very very interesting topic And it's certainly considered to be among the harder topics in Islam. And it's one of those topics that when you study it, you genuinely feel like a talib al-ilm, like a student of knowledge. Because you begin to study just a glimpse, just a, a fraction of what the scholars use in order to make the rulings that they to give the rulings that they give, and in order to have the understanding that they have of the book of Allah and the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu And one of the Branches of knowledge where you really feel like you're getting a glimpse into the world of the the scholars. Is this science that we're going to talk about. And it is the science of Usul Al-Fiqh. Today, we're just going to talk about what Usul Al-Fiqh is and what it isn't because for a lot of you this will be the first time you've ever studied usool al-fiqh. So we should start by saying that usool al-fiqh is made up of two words usul and fiqh. If you want to understand the grammar or the construct in English we're saying the Usul of Fiqh. The Usul of Fiqh. But we're still left with two Arabic words there Usul and Fiqh. Usul with a sad, is the plural of Asl. And Asl has a number of meanings but one of the meanings is something which everything else is built upon i.e. the foundation we call the foundation of something al-asl because it is something which everything else is built upon so in this case usul would be foundations We also use the word Asl to mean Al-Qa'idah, the principle. In which case Usul would be Qawaid, principles. And there are other definitions which we will come to next week when we start the book properly. But just in general you understand that Usul is the plural of Asl and Asl means a foundation or a principle. And as for al-fiqh, then linguistically, al-fiqh is understanding. Like in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, Whoever Allah wants good for, he gives him fiqh, In the religion the meaning of fiqh in the religion is not that he makes him a scholar of fiqh as in whoever Allah wants good for him he makes him a scholar of fiqh and whoever Allah doesn't he makes him a scholar of hadith not like this but the meaning of fiqh here is understanding he gives him understanding of the religion this is linguistically And as for in a technical sense, we'll come to a proper definition of fiqh later on in a technical sense. But here, we're talking about Islamic rulings essentially. We're talking about, when we talk about fiqh here, we're talking about detailed Islamic rulings. Detailed Islamic rulings so usul al-fiqh in this sense therefore are the fundamental principles or the foundations upon which detailed Islamic rulings are based the fundamental principles or foundations upon which the detailed Islamic rulings are based example of a detailed Islamic ruling somebody asks you I said the word divorce to my wife three times in one sitting, is this a single divorce or is this a irrevocable divorce, Any a three times divorce this is a detailed Islamic ruling, to get to that ruling we have some fundamental foundations which we need to be able to get to that detailed ruling Those fundamental foundations and principles don't relate to any one particular science. They're not related to talaq or marriage or buying or selling or prayer or wudu. They're much more general than that. So it is the very very general fundamentals and principles upon which detailed rulings are based. Now, that tells us that we can't get to the point where we make detailed rulings unless we have these foundations and these principles. So without these foundations and principles, we would not be able to get to the point where we are able to extract a detailed ruling from a body of evidence. Because if you think about it, I usually give the example, it's like a mine. Like a mine. You go into the mine and you're basically chipping off stone. You come out, you refine it, you purify it and it turns into whatever it is, gold or copper or silver or whatever. Likewise, we go into Islamic evidence, the Quran, the Sunnah, consensus and so on. how do we come out with a detailed ruling, which is like the example of that gold you know, how do we go from chipping away at the stone, to extracting the gold how do we go from a body of text which talks about many things the ayah might talk about talaq, it might talk about intention, it might talk about many different things how do we then go from that to produce a detailed ruling on a particular issue the process of doing that and the science of doing that is the science of Usul al Fiqh. So, we've talked about it from a linguistic sense. I mean, so far we haven't talked about it from a technical sense, just linguistically, that it is the foundations or the principles which underlie or underpin the science of Fiqh, i.e., to be able to give detailed rulings based on Islamic evidences therefore uh, this is the principles or the fundamentals which basically run this whole process the definition that I'm going to give you today and there are many of course but the definition I'm going to give you today for usool al-fiqh is that usool al-fiqh is the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense and the way in which they are used is evidence I'll repeat that a few times the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense and the way in which they are used as evidence the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense and the way in which they are used as evidence now the first time you hear that definition it's a little bit cloudy you know it needs a little bit of clarity, you're kind of like, okay the proofs of Islamic legislation what are they in a general sense, why general, why not specific and the way in which they use this evidence. So really this definition breaks down into three parts the proofs of Islamic legislation that's part one and part two in a general sense meaning not in a detailed sense or a specific sense and number three, the way in which they are used as as evidence and if you wish you can join one and two together and say it's two parts, the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense and then the second part, the way in which they are used as evidence Usul al-fiqh doesn't look at Specific evidences. It doesn't look at, for example, an ayah, at least not from the point of view of extracting a ruling from it. It doesn't deal with a a hadith. it deals with the general proofs of Islamic legislation. For example, the Qur'an as a whole. The Sunnah as a whole. Consensus as a whole. What is valid out of that? what isn't valid out of that and the different levels of each one so what is valid, what is not valid in the sense, what is an acceptable proof and what isn't if I said I had a dream and in this dream I was told that riba is halal Usul al-fiqh isn't going to answer the question of whether riba is halal or not, that is a question for, for fiqh. It's going to answer the question, is a dream an acceptable proof in Islamic legislation? And if so, to what extent? And what level does that have in comparison to all of the other levels of Islamic proof? Is it more important than the Qur'an, less important than the Qur'an? And so on. Of course, dreams have no place in Islamic legislation. But I'm giving you just an example that I, you know, hopefully you can relate to. Usul al-fiqh deals with legislation in a general sense. Yes, it may look at ayat. It may look at individual ayat. But it's not looking at them for a detailed ruling. It's not looking at is this halal or is this haram. It's looking at the mechanism of why is anything halal or anything haram. What makes something halal, what makes something haram. Not necessarily the individual issue. So you wouldn't open a book of Usul al-fiqh and find the ruling on selling two contracts within one contract. You find that in a book of fiqh. In usul al-fiqh, what you will find is, in a general sense, when is a hadith a proof, when is a hadith not a proof? When is consensus a proof, when is consensus not a proof? If I have an ayah which contradicts a hadith, which one do I put first? If I have consensus which contradicts a hadith, how do I reconcile? So it deals with legislation in a general sense. What's valid and what isn't and the different levels either the different levels of each. Now a person may say doesn't that have an overlap with the science of hadith? And the answer is yes, there is somewhat of an overlap. Um, in, in different sciences because you have to remember that the Prophet didn't have Usul al-Fiqh classes and Usul al-Hadith classes and he taught Islam as a whole and so yes for sure there is there are some levels of overlap but generally the scholars of Hadith are very specifically interested in distinguishing authentic Hadith from inauthentic Hadith the scholar of Usul is not really worried about that method as much as What do I do with an inauthentic hadith and what do I do with an authentic hadith? And which one is a proof and which one isn't? And what about if I have two inauthentic hadith? Can I use them as supporting evidence for one another? And they're interested in its use as evidence. Whereas the scholar of hadith is simply interested in whether it's authentic or not. Not necessarily it's evidence, although the scholar of hadith of course will involve himself in evidence from but he's putting a different hat on then he's taking his hadith hat off and putting his fiqh hat on you know he's changing his perspective but in general the scholar of hadith his main aim when he's doing the science of hadith is to distinguish what's authentic and what isn't and this is authentic this isn't this is authentic this isn't the scholar of usul is more interested this is a proof and this isn't this is a proof and this isn't that's his main concern yes there may be some overlap because of course if a hadith is weak it may no longer be valid as a proof and therefore there may be some overlap there but in general the scholar of hadith his concern is simply is it authentic the scholar of fiqh is the one who is going to say okay is it a proof or not and the way in which they are used as evidence, this is the last part of the definition i.e. in what way does the evidence indicate a particular ruling so I have some evidence the first part is all about choosing what is evidence, if you give the example of the mine the first part of the definition is about choosing which rock to chip off and take back to the surface and which one to leave the second part is about okay now I brought all these rocks to the surface that are supposedly got they supposedly got gold or silver or whatever in them in what way does this evidence any produce this outcome? And how do we go about extracting it? In what way does the evidence indicate a particular ruling? And this will become clear as we explain the chapters of Asul al-Fiqh will become easier. In what way does the evidence indicate a particular ruling? i have a body of evidence in what way does that tell me how do i know that this is going to or that this indicates a particular ruling and then how do i go about extracting the ruling from that evidence okay i have a bunch of evidence how do i go about extracting the ruling from that evidence So once again we say Usul al-fiqh are the proofs of Islamic legislation in a general sense. i.e. the Quran, the Sunnah, consensus, what is valid, what isn't, and the different levels of each. And the way in which they are used as evidence. i.e. in what way does the evidence indicate a particular ruling? When, do I, when does an evidence tell me something is wajib? When does an evidence tell me something is haram? When does an evidence tell me... That something is recommended. How do I know it's recommended and not obligatory? How do I know it's haram and not makruh? And how do I then go about extracting rulings from this body of evidence that I have? So in the beginning, it kind of gets more and more specific. In the beginning, I'm interested what is in an evidence and what isn't. This is an evidence, this isn't. This is an evidence, this isn't. Okay, I've got my evidence now in what way does that evidence show me that it's going to indicate a particular ruling and then how do I actually do the final process of getting that ruling out of the evidence that is the primary concern of Usul al-fiqh having said that there are topics in Usul al-fiqh outside of that definition however they are what you would call introductions and appendices really even though maybe some scholars of usul al-fiqh would not agree with me in that but they are generally introductions and appendices in other words they are basically supporting information for that that is the main purpose of usul al-fiqh for example in the beginning of usul al-fiqh we usually talk about al-ahkam rulings, what are rulings, what are the different categories of rulings that's not really part of that definition The categories of rulings. However, it's needed because when you're going to start talking about how to extract rulings, you should at least know what type of rulings you're going to extract in the first place. And likewise, for example, the chapter of Al-Mufti wa'l-Mustafti. The one who gives the fatwa and the one who asks for a fatwa what are the characteristics of the person who gives a fatwa and what are the characteristics of the person who asks for a fatwa this again is not part of the definition but it's only a supporting topic, it's not the main purpose the purpose is a supporting topic because while we're talking about Usul al-fiqh we should also talk about the characteristics of the scholar of Usul al-fiqh and the characteristics that are required when you go to the scholar to ask for that ruling so when I go to the scholar and say I want to know this ruling what are the manners and the mechanisms by which I should ask for that ruling and how should he approach giving that ruling to me that's still an appendix really to the main topic of actually taking the ruling out so yes we can say this definition is uh, it doesn't cover every single topic within usul al-fiqh However, what it does do is focus on what usul al-fiqh really is. And I feel this is extremely important. Because as we will learn, as we are going through, usul al-fiqh was somewhat hijacked by people whose aqeedah, whose creed, was not the creed of Ahl sunnah And the majority of the books, that we, that are studied today on usul al-fiqh are written by people whose aqeedah was questionable and so what they did and of course not all of them but what many of them did is that they added into usul al-fiqh things that don't belong to it and so when you read a book of usul al-fiqh for example something, you know, uh, significant like Mustafa al-Ghazali, Imam al-Ghazali Allah wa ta'ala. you see like loads and loads and loads and loads of things outside of that definition, this definition helps you to focus on what really is usul al-fiqh and not what is ilmul kalam because ilmul kalam has no part in usul al-fiqh the science of rhetoric and philosophy have no part in usul al-fiqh. And the fact that people like al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, and others, added philosophy into usul al-fiqh is their fault, not the fault of usul al-fiqh. And it's their mistake to add philosophy into usul al-fiqh. However, the reality is, when you open books of usul al-fiqh, you will find a lot of philosophy and rhetoric and, and a lot of stuff that needs cutting away so what I wanted to do with this definition is to give you the knife by which you can cut away the stuff that doesn't belong meaning that the stuff that is outside of this definition apart from the supporting chapters of what rulings are and who the scholar of usul is and whatever generally a lot of it you will find is just rhetoric and philosophy and that has no place in Islam, it has no place in the early books of usul al-fiqh like those of al-imam al-shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala because al-imam al-shafi'i was one of the strongest people against this philosophy and rhetoric and it was only those people who came well after the, the four imams and after their books of usul and after so on that, that they started to add in philosophy and rhetoric until the books that we mostly study today have a lot of that in And it's quite hard to find books that are free of that rhetoric and philosophy unless you go either back to the earliest of the books in which case they're not very well ordered and they're a little bit, you know for example if you look at Al-Umm by Imam al-Shafi'i it's a mix of many things the science of hadith is in there Usul al-fiqh is in there there's a lot of stuff in there so you kind of have to cut away a lot of the stuff that doesn't belong. So in general, it helps to have a very narrow definition so that you can be a little bit selective and say, to be honest, do I really need to know, you know, like some of the stuff that is in these books, you know, probably half of the book, you could just take a razor blade and cut the pages out, because it would, it's just kalam, it's just rhetoric. Uh, And it doesn't benefit you anything. And when you study it, it gives you a headache. Really, I mean you study it, like this is why people don't study usul al-fiqh and I think usul al-fiqh has a bad reputation i.e. it has a reputation for being extraordinarily difficult it has a reputation that people can't study, it's extremely difficult but really the main reason it's extremely difficult is because it's full of philosophy and rhetoric and once you cut away that philosophy and rhetoric, actually usul al-fiqh like the rest of Islam is very very easy to understand and simple and it has nice, clear foundations that can be applied, and you can practice them. But you have to cut away the, you have to cut away the junk, and so it helps to have quite a narrow definition of what Usul al-fiqh is, so that you are able to remove that stuff that doesn't belong there, or you're able to at least filter it out. These books are of great benefit. The books that we we, we study, even the book we're going to study in class, uh, is by one of the scholars who uh, himself was Ash'ari, he was one of the Imams of the ash'ari uh, he repented from that towards the end of his life rahimahullah taala. but at the end of the day, the book that we will study which is Al-Waraqat by uh, Imam, Imam al Haramain, Dun malik Al-Juwaini uh, Abu Al-Ma'ali he was an Imam from the Immah of the Ash'airah from the Imma of the Ash'aris he was not from Ahl-Sunnah in that sense, however he repented from this towards the end of his life. But his books, especially the books on usul, they remain, they remain full of this stuff. Alhamdulillah, al is one of the better ones. Eh? But the point is that we, you will come across stuff. You will come across things that you will need to cut away. Once you cut that stuff away, usul al-fiqh becomes incredibly simple. Because one of the most fundamental principles of rhetoric, of ilm al-kalam and philosophy, is that you are speaking about things that have no fruit. And we have spoke about this before. They have no thamara, they have no action. You're speaking about things that have no practical application. And so that causes a lot of headache when you study something like that. Because you're studying something that has no practical application in Islam or outside of Islam at all. It is purely rhetoric. For example, when the philosopher sits and says, "What if we're not actually living in a real world? What if this world we're living in is actually a dream, and we're all just I mean, figments of that dream?" And say, "Okay, what shall I do now? Like, what's what? Mal amal, what shall I? What shall I do? Should I change my religion? Should I? What, I mean, what should I do? Tell me, what should I do?" Okay, we're living in a dream, what shall I do? Say, well, there's nothing you can do, I just wanted to share that with you. That's philosophy. It's speech which there is no benefit in whatsoever. Not only does it contradict the Quran and the Sunnah, which clearly make it, true, make it clear to us that we're not living in a dream, but that's not the point. The point is that even if we look outside of the Quran and Sunnah, there is no action, there's nothing to do. It's just philosophizing, and he's sitting there and thinking, "What if, actually, I'm not me?" Like this is philosophy, and when you come across this in Usul al-Fiqh, it will hurt your head to an in, you know insane degree because you're studying something that has no amal, it has no barakah in it. It didn't come from Allah and from His Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Came from Plato and Aristotle. And so ultimately, sitting there, you can sit there all day and say, What if I'm not me? But ultimately, Yawm al Qiyamah, is that going to benefit you anything? Is that going to actually lead you to get to Jannah or save you from Jahannam? Nothing. There's no action to do. And so it's very important, I believe at least, it's very important that we cut out this rhetoric from the books of Usul al Fiqh. And Usul al Fiqh is one place in Islam where you'll see this a lot. Of course they won't be talking about dreams and am I, me, but they'll be talking about similar kind of wispy wavy ideas as it relates to Islamic legislation. You know, they talk for a very, very, very long time about whether evidence provides doubt or certainty or to what extent can you say you're certain about your evidence and what extent you can say you're doubtful about it some of that might have a, a limited benefit in it but ultimately again you ask at the end of the day okay and if this hadith is qat'i or dhanni this hadith is either an absolute certainty or it's you know predominant in my opinion Ultimately, I'm still going to act upon the hadith. What should I do? I'm not going to change. Whether, you know, you talk about is it potentially possible that there could have ever been an error in this hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari? It's all type of discussion that ultimately doesn't bring you any action. It doesn't change what you do. Because at the end of it, they'll say, yeah, you still have to act upon it. So, okay, what is the point in then in me discussing all day about whether it's qata'i or dhanni whether it provides absolute knowledge or whether it provides preponderant knowledge. Okay, Absolute knowledge or preponderant knowledge, whatever it provides, but I still have to act upon it. I still have to get up in the morning and do wudu the way that it tells me to do wudu. So whether the knowledge is, is absolute or whether the knowledge is 99%, it doesn't make really any great difference about it. So there's a lot of discussion you'll come across and usually when you start talking about it, it hurts your head. You start thinking, what is predominant? What is absolute knowledge? And what does it mean that knowledge is certain or not certain? And what is certainty? And it, you start scratching your head. That's when you know that you've deviated from the Sunnah in Usul al-Fiqh and you've started into philosophy and rhetoric because it makes you scratch your head and it makes you think, ow, you know that, that hurts. But at the end of the day, the Sahaba did not concern themselves with this they did not sit there concerning themselves does it provide me with certain knowledge or preponderant knowledge and if it's preponderant knowledge then what to what extent is that knowledge can that knowledge be quantified and they did not discuss this they heard a hadith and they acted upon it so inshallah that is hopefully uh, that is hopefully clear another thing that we should make clear about usul al fiqh uh, in this brief introduction is that it isn't just the fundamentals from which we extract fiqh, as in fiqh rulings. But also, any Islamic rulings, rulings in aqidah, rulings in uh, manas, in any issue, all of them require some degree of Usul al-fiqh. Because how are you going to prove that this is your belief? You know, your aqidah has to come from the Qur'an and the sunnah. So how are you going to prove that this is from the Quran and the Sunnah how are you going to know what is a valid evidence and what isn't so usul al fiqh is not just an evidence for fiqh on its own but it's also an evidence for other forms of islamic knowledge it's also the foundation for other forms of islamic knowledge in terms of anything for which we need to use evidence requires usul al fiqh any form of knowledge for which we need to provide an evidence requires usul al fiqh because usul al fiqh is that which says to us what is a valid evidence and what isn't a valid evidence. And usul al fiqh is what says to us which evidence is stronger than the other. So we need it to prove points of uh, belief as well as we need it to prove points of halal and haram in terms of fiqh. Very briefly, just in two, three minutes, I just talk you through. The, uh, the main sort of division of usool al-fiqh, again it's very very simplified but it's okay we can simplify, it's nice to simplify first really usool al-fiqh can be simplified into three or four topics the first one is an introductory topic i.e. it's not part of the main definition it's an introduction and that is the definition of the various rulings in Islam for example what is wajib what is mustahab what is makruh? what is haram what does that mean so the definition of the various rulings in Islam and there are more than that what's a condition, what's an impediment there are, like, there are various things but definitions of rulings definitions of rulings and that isn't really part of the main body of usul al fiqh but it's kind of like the introduction it's like before you go into the mine someone says okay this is a, this is a gold ore and this is silver ore and this is iron ore and so you should be aware of what you're going in to look for so it kind of gives you an introduction to that. The first main topic of Usul al-fiqh is the topic of evidence, al adilla And this topic of evidence primarily looks at four things. Because as we said, it doesn't look at evidence specifically, it looks at evidence generally. So it looks at the Qur'an and the Sunnah and consensus and analogy Four things generally very simplified but Four things The first main topic in Usul al Fiqh is the topic of evidence and it looks at the Qur'an what is the Qur'an, what isn't the Qur'an what is the Qur'an a proof for to what extent is the Qur'an a proof what place does the Qur'an have in the level of proofs and so on Qur'an, the Sunnah consensus, which we call Ijma' and Qiyas analogy consensus when everyone agrees on something, analogy where you compare one thing to another so you say this is haram because it's similar to this which is also haram, for example these are evidences, a lot of long discussion, there are individual books on each individual part of that, but we're just gonna do a summary of evidence. The second main category of Usul al-fiqh relates to what words mean the meaning of the meaning of words or the evidence which is taken from various words. For example, commands and prohibitions. What's a command? What's a prohibition? What are the different forms of commands and prohibitions that are found? What makes something a command? What makes something a prohibition? What is general and what is specific? How do you know something is general? To be applied to every, everything, every circumstance? How do you know something is specific to a particular circumstance? absolute and restricted, how do you know that something is unrestricted in its application and how do you know when something is restricted to a particular application, restricted to a particular time or a particular place how do you know when something is abrogated How do you know when something is explicit? Or when something is implicit? When something is explicit, it's absolutely clear. Or when something is implicit, it's implied by the meaning, but it's not completely clear. These all come under the topic of Maybe we could call it call it Dilalatul Alfav, but I think maybe we could call it the way that words are used as evidence. Maybe that's the best translation for it. The way that words are used as evidence. So it deals with what is a command, what's a prohibition, what's general, what's specific, what's unrestricted, what's restricted, what's explicit, what's implicit. what is general and vague and what is specific and detailed and it deals with abrogation what is abrogation and how do we know something is abrogated and then the final topic of usul al-fiqh the final if you like major topic in usul al-fiqh Is a ta'arud wa tarjih. Contradiction and a tarjih. Preferring one opinion over the other. What do you do if there is an apparent contradiction? And how do you know to prefer one uh, evidence over another evidence? How do you come to a conclusion as to which evidence carries more weight versus which carries less weight? As we said, there are several appendices which can be added to that, including, as we said, al Mufti wal Mustafti, the one who gives the fatwa and the one who asks for it, and the conditions of ijtihad and some other things. But this is the main, the core of Usul al Fiqh can be found in these four chapters, the first of which is an introduction and the three which are the main topic. The topic of evidence, the topic of the way that words are used as evidence or the evidence that is taken from 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 wording and phrases. Sure they use a proper word for that in English like phraseology or something like that but I don't know what it is. And At-ta'arud what do you do when there is an apparent contradiction between different texts and how do you prefer or give preference or give extra weight to one text over another. That is insha'Allah what we're going to be studying in Usul uh, Al-Fiqh Allah ta'ala. Uh, and we'll be studying from, as we said, a very very simple beginner's text. It's a very very good text, the scholars have generally accepted it as being an excellent text to teach from, uh, which is called Al Waraqat, which is I mean Al Waraqat, just a, f- a few pieces of paper because it's nice and small, by Imam Al Haramain Abu Maali Malik, Al Juhayni, rahimahullah taala. And inshallah taala, we'll talk more about the author and the book in the next class. Bismillahi taala. in terms of results for your previous exam, not the one you took today. They should be out in the next couple of days. I'm a little running a little bit late, but they're pretty much done inshallah, so uh, Results should be out in the next couple of days and other than that inshallah, we will stop there I actually have an appointment now I believe in s- in Kelima. there is uh, some people waiting to accept the stamp maybe so inshallah we have to uh, leave a little bit quickly um, And uh, I won't have too much time for questions But next I will try to give some time next lesson because we have some outstanding questions uh, also tonight Friday night reflections, inshallah, or whichever one it is, names of Allah. Friday night reflections, whichever the two. It's here anyway after Isha, and it will be the last uh, one before Ramadan. So, do encourage everyone to come, inshallah, taala, uh, to that. Jazakumullahu khairan.